Good morning. How's it going, everybody? I hope everybody had a Merry Christmas and is anticipating a new year full of resolutions and promises that will break probably within a week's time, but that's okay, as long as the intention is right. Um, a couple of announcements before uh, I get into the message this morning. First off, I'm, I'm Pastor Marty. I'm the youth pastor here at Redemption Church. So if I've not met you before, welcome to Redemption Church. Um, but just, just a few housekeeping items before we get into the word this morning. First off, you heard uh, last week and, and you saw some posts on social media about our year-end giving. Everything from last week, even in this service as well, both here and online, which I'll talk about in a second, is going towards our year-end giving fund, which we're giving to four different organizations that uh, organizations and ministries that directly impact the community around us. And so if you uh, plan on giving today, know that that is where that is going. Um, and you have until midnight tonight, I believe, to even donate online. Uh, when you do that, there is one, a link. So if you go back and check through our social media accounts, maybe we'll even throw something up there after church today, just to let you know that you can still do that. Um, there's a specific link, but if you're going to do it online via church center or all of that, make sure you click the drop-down arrow and you'll see a, a year-end giving option. If you don't do that, it will be designated as a normal tithe. And so uh, just so you're aware of that, so make sure that you get that in. We're excited to be able to bless these four different organizations that um, I know mean uh, a lot to me personally, but also just us as a community here at Redemption Church. Uh, secondly, you've, you've probably heard at this point, if, if not, I don't know, you weren't listening to the announcements, but we're doing a new Bible reading plan next year. So today was the last day to, you should be finishing up Revelation. If you were following along with us this past year, the goal of this past year was to just get us through the Bible, reading it. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. But next year, we want to go a little bit deeper. And so we have set up for you a New Testament Bible reading plan where we will have five different um, passages that you will read per week, one of which is de designated for you to uh, go a little bit deeper and to implement a, a Bible study, some Bible study tools. And so uh, if you want to grab those, there are the first quarter of passages out on the Welcome Center, as well as the, the SOAPS uh, Bible, Bible study method sticker that you can either put in your Bible or in the notebook, which reminds me, uh, if you want a notebook that's kind of inscribed with the redemption logo and it comes with a pen and it's just a good place to keep all of your notes succinct, um, you can order those. There's a QR code out there. I believe if you just see Pastor Fred, he can point you in the right direction on how to get those. Those are $10. We're asking if you have $10 to cover that cost, if you could do that. If you want one and you just don't have $10, we understand. We still wanna get those to you, but make sure you pick up those resources because it starts tomorrow. And I'm very excited for us to dive in to the word again together, not just to read it, but to also study it alongside of one another. And that's gonna be a very exciting thing. And then lastly, India mentioned with the newsletter coming out tomorrow, as well as the app, the Church Center app is going to be updated when it comes to small groups. Uh, small groups are actually starting a couple weeks later. They're gonna start on the week of January 14th. So that's, I believe, two weeks from now. So that week is when small groups will start. Definitely make sure that you check out the small groups page because there's going to be a few new classes offered that kind of align with uh, what Pastor Fred's gonna be starting a series next week on, which is our, uh, it's uh, a new discipleship path that we're kind of, uh, I guess we're rolling it out, right? I don't know. We're gonna be preaching through four different sermons, kind of focusing on the direction that we wanna take our people at Redemption Church through when it comes to discipleship. And there's already two classes that are gonna be offered there. So make sure you check that out. Um, and all of that will be updated tomorrow. 
Um, if you have any questions about small groups or anything like that, you can see Sean Fenner or one of the pastors and we can point you in the right direction as well. But with that being said, Pastor Fred asked me to uh, preach a message, kind of a stopgap message between Christmas and the new year when we're going to be talking about discipleship. And so I had just gone through a series with the youth group leading up to Christmas that I thought was very appropriate for something that I could even teach on a Sunday morning. And so if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12. What I'm going to do is I'll read the passage, I'll pray, and then we'll get into the message together. Matthew chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible or you don't have your phone on you or whatever, it'll be on the screen behind me. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them, where is the Messiah that would be born? In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him, and they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warmed in a dream, warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time of worship this morning already through song. I love hearing uh, the people of God just singing praises to your name. And I pray, Lord, that as we just sang, that it would not be our wills that would be done this morning here at church, Lord, that it, but it, it would be your will that would be done, your word that would be preached, your spirit that would move, and that uh, we would receive that word uh, with eager hearts Uh, with attentive minds uh, and help us not just to hear it and then to leave and forget about it, but to be intentional about making application where it's necessary so that we could be more like your son, giving you all glory, honor, and praise this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I would be willing to bet that most of us know something about the story of the wise men coming to visit Jesus, whether it's Maybe just a vague recollection. Uh, Maybe it's a couple of lyrics from the well-known Christmas song, We Three Kings, or perhaps even it's entwined with the Luke 2 account of the birth of Jesus, you know, the account with the angels uh, appearing to the shepherds. and, And many churches sometimes, Sunday school classes, schools, Christian schools, maybe other groups just tend to kind of lump these two events together, assuming that the wise men, I mean, you see it in the nativity scenes, you just assume the wise men were there that night when Jesus was born. Well, traditionally, they are known as the wise men or the magi. The Bible does not say anywhere, though, that there were three men. We just read the account. It doesn't say there were three of them, only that there were three gifts. So I think just by tradition, we just assume one gift per person. They're also not called kings anywhere in the scripture. So the title of the song, We Three Kings, I don't really know where that came from. But this morning, nonetheless, uh, just so I can 
poke fun at the nativity scene for a second. We're not even focusing on the wise men, but what we're gonna focus on are the gifts given to Jesus by these men. Were they random gifts? Do they have any significance in the biblical account, both then and then how about now? Like, what are we supposed to think about the things that are specifically mentioned in Matthew chapter two? Why didn't the gospel account just say, and they presented him with gifts, period? I mean, it's a new child, poor family, prominent men. Maybe they're just coming to bless them in some way, shape, or form financially. But the gifts are named in verse 11. It said, entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts. And then it lists gold, frankincense, and myrrh. See, I believe that if the scriptures can be bothered to record these gifts so carefully and specifically, then there has to be a reason why. See, if you know anything about Matthew's gospel, as you've, maybe as you read through it this year, you'll notice that um, there's, there's a very deliberate way of him telling the story. And a lot of detail is included that might not otherwise be there in, in Mark's gospel or even John's gospel, so to speak. But Matthew's very deliberate. And so... Uh, From very early times, reading about these three gifts, the gifts that the wise men brought have been seen as particularly fitting for this specific occasion. See, each gift has been seen as representing something which specifically matched some characteristic of Jesus and the work that he came to accomplish, even as a child. These are not just individual gifts as we see either. They, they kind of intertwine with one another and they build on each other. And today, what I want to do is kind of unwrap each of these three gifts, no pun intended, and think about the significance of them for us today as well as then, but for us today and how, how we can apply these same, presenting the same types of things to Jesus in order to honor him in the same way as the wise men did in Matthew chapter two. And so if you're a note taker or if you got a bulletin this morning, on the back of that, you'll see a place to fill in some notes. And so with that, let's look at point number one, which is the gift of gold, which is the gift of kingship. We're looking at gold, the gift of kingship. The words gold and king appear together in the Bible over 60 times. Gold was something that royalty collected in that time. The average person did not have access to gold regularly. Elsewhere in the Gospels, when money is mentioned, silver was usually the most valuable thing mentioned. So back then, just as today, in a way, right, gold was a precious and costly metal. Gold represented wealth in both the ancient secular and spiritual world and was considered to be a treasure by many. Therefore, it would be an appropriate gift for royalty because it is so precious and so costly. See, throughout the Bible, gold is often associated with anything of great value. In Proverbs 8.10, uh, the word says, accept my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than pure gold because it is of significant value, right? Even nobility, there's different places in the Bible where crowns are placed on people's heads that would have been made of gold, right? And how about worship to God? In Exodus 25, Moses is instructed by the Lord to take up an offering for worship to him. And it says in Exodus 
Exodus 25, 3, that these are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze. So even worship, so value, nobility, worship. And considering all the prophecies that the wise men knew, Matthew tells us that wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and we've come to worship him. They were anticipating this. We talked a little bit about that over Christmas whenever Fred was talking about the anticipation of Christmas. This was one of the most anticipated events in all of human history was the the Messiah being born. And these wise men knew the prophecies and they knew who they were looking for. And if they knew who they were in search of, they would naturally have considered taking this precious metal to present to this Christ child. The gift of gold to Jesus is no doubt symbolic of many things, one being his divinity, the fact that he is in fact the Messiah, God in the flesh. This is Christ, the King who has been born. And because we, what we know of Jesus's life here in 2023, almost 2024, we can easily see the connection between gold for a king and Jesus being king. We sing about it, we read about it, we talk about it, we say these things, but do we actually understand Jesus as a king? See, the wise men knew of God's promise, and this gift of gold was not just acknowledging that Jesus was born into this world to be a king someday, Nor was it simply acknowledging that Jesus was only just another earthly king. There was King Herod at the same time that Jesus was born. Was he just another earthly king? No, they knew that this is Jesus, king of kings, and he reigns over all of us. This is our Messiah. This is our Savior. And so so now what? Well, if we take this truth and we jump all the way to where we're sitting right now, I want you to hear this simple but profound truth. Jesus is king. And when a king rules, his subjects must be loyal and follow him obediently. Jesus plainly says, I feel like we quoted this verse probably the most in our Deuteronomy series last year, but John 14, 15, Jesus plainly says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. If you love me, you will obey me. You will do the things that I'm telling you to do or not do the things that I tell you not to do. If Jesus is to be the king of our lives, then the challenge is what gift of gold can we bring to Jesus today? What is it that we can bring to offer acknowledgement, loyalty, and obedience to our king? See, if Jesus is our king, we must focus not on what we want, but solely on what what Jesus wants for us. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not my will, but your will be done. You know what this looks like in the Christian life? It's a word that often has a negative connotation to it. We don't like it, but it's submission. It's submitting yourself under the authority of Christ. We must focus more of our time on him, learn to trust him. See, if Jesus is going to be the king of his church, which he is, by the way, he needs to be the king of each of our lives individually. It's not just enough to come here and collectively submit under the authority of Christ, although that's good, I think that's important, but whenever we leave these four walls, is he still the king of your life? So what areas of your life do you still need to give over to Christ, the king? What are the things that you hold as precious in your life 
that you have, you have yet to give over to God, submit under his authority? What is the kingly possession that you directly or indirectly worship that keeps you from God wholeheartedly? I have to cough. <laughs> Felt that coming the whole time. I didn't want to cough into the mic. And just so we're clear, okay, when I talk about all this, you know, making sure Jesus is king in your life, I'm not talking about crowning Jesus as king of your life as if he needs you to do that for him. This is not an act of you making him king. This is an act of you submitting to the, all, the fact that he already is king. Okay, hear me on that. Jesus doesn't need you to crown him as king. Make no mistake about it. He's king already. He didn't need the wise men to show up to affirm the fact that he was born king of the Jews. Okay, first, he came as a baby, which we read about, and in, 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 you can read about it in Luke's gospel account. We're kind of reading about his early childhood here with the wise men visiting him. But how about when, he's coming, when he comes back? We just read about that too. If you were here for our Revelation series, Revelation 19 verses 11 through 16 talks about the fact that Jesus is in fact king. Listen, he doesn't need you to tell him he's king. He knows he's king. And this is what he's coming back as. In Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, it says, then I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse. Its rider is called faithful and true. And with justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. Not many crowns were placed on his head by his believers because he needed them to do that. They're already on his head. And he had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his name, his name is called the word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh. King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the same person that we read about, the little baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. This is him, born a king. See, I'm talking about submitting to his ultimate kingship and authority over your life. Are you living in a state today of resistance of him as your king? Whether fully, you completely deny it, or partially, I want Jesus the Savior, but Jesus, my Lord and King, submitting to his authority over my life? I don't know about that one. That, that one. I read this the other day from a pastor I enjoy and follow on social media. His name is Pastor Shane Pruitt. If you're friends with me on Facebook, you've probably seen me share stuff of his before. But he said this the other day, and I thought it was so good and so fitting for my sermon. Um, he says this, quote, the gospel isn't about accepting Jesus into your life. It's about Jesus taking over your life. And that's radically different. And friends, that is radically different. Accepting him into your life as a buddy, as your savior, as Jesus, my homeboy, who I can fist bump and go to in times of need or whenever I need some, absolutely not. No, it's about him taking over your life and having his will be done in your life, not yours. Most of us accept Jesus, the savior, but we refuse to accept or better yet to submit to Jesus, the king. It's not enough to simply accept Jesus as king. However, we have to submit to his rule as well. Jesus isn't simply to be a part of our lives as many things are a part of our lives. Jesus is to be our entire life. He's the only way, he's the only truth, he's the only life. He is our king and we must bow to his kingship this morning. What are you keeping from the king? 
But because Jesus is king, we have to be loyal and faithful, and we must honor him by spending time with him, which leads me into the second gift this morning, which is frankincense, the gift of worship. We saw gold, the gift of kingship. What about frankincense, the gift of worship? Why? Why the gift of frankincense to this young child who was born into this uh, peasant family? See, it's another item of significant value and purpose at the time. Frankincense was often used in temple worship. It's, a high, it's highly fragrant when it's burned and was therefore used as a pleasant offering to God. The aroma, uh, they believed, would be a, a pleasing to God. And we see it all throughout the Old and the New Testament. For example, you got Moses in Exodus 30. He uses it in the tent of meeting where he, he meets with God and he burns frankincense. He burns it as an offering to God and worship. And then we have in the New Testament, funny enough, leading into uh, kind of the Christmas story, we have Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist in Luke chapter one, burning incense in the sanctuary of the Lord while other, others prayed outside to God. And this is This gift is highly associated with worship. That's my point. We see it all throughout the scriptures. And is that not what the wise men were said to have come to do? I mean, look back at verse two. I don't think this is gonna be on the screen. But when they showed up, they arrived in Jerusalem. They said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. There was intention behind what the wise men were there to do. Also, verse 11 They fell to their knees. When they entered the home, they fell to their knees and they worshiped him. This gift, no doubt, also recognized the deity of Christ, the fact that Jesus is in fact Emmanuel, God with us in the flesh, and therefore he is worthy of our worship. Now, considering the gift of frankincense, the gift that is about worship and honor, I want us to think about the time that we spend with God. Again, collectively is one thing. And you could say, I never miss a Sunday, and that's fine. What about the rest of the week? What about the time we give to being loyal and obedient to him day in and day out, moment by moment? How do we do this? What is this supposed to look like? You might say, Pastor Marty, like, that's fine, and I want to be that way, but I don't know how to do that other than, like, am I literally supposed to pray about every single step I make? Like, Lord, should I step this way? Lord, well, It's interesting, the question of what this is supposed to look like, what is true worship supposed to look like? The Bible gives us that answer. You don't have to wonder about that. It's clear, and I love that about the scriptures, the clarity of scripture, the fact that we can read it and understand it and take it in and make application individually is an amazing thing. But Romans chapter 12, verses one through three, tells us the answer to this question. I'm gonna read it. I believe it'll be on the screen, then we'll kind of unpack that under this point. Romans 12, verse one says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Everybody read the next phrase. This is your true worship. There it is. There's your answer. You don't have to be confused anymore. What is true worship? Presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. But it continues. Verse two, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing and perfect will of God. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. So here's a couple questions for you. 
rhetorical, obviously. You don't have to answer these. But in the Old Testament, what was, the co- what was a common component of worship? Sacrifice. Animal sacrifice, to be specific, a, a spotless uh, uh, animal of some kind to be sacrificed to God in some way, shape, or form. What is the true and proper worship that Romans 12.1 talks about, though? It is sacrifice, but it's our bodies offered as a living sacrifice. Okay, what do you think it means to be a living sacrifice then? How is it like an Old Testament sacrifice as an animal, of an animal? Well, we, we submit, we humble ourselves, we lay down our rights, we sacrifice everything that we are to God so he can do what he wants with us. Sounds a lot like surrendering and submitting to the king, which we talked about under point number one. This is worship. And why do you think the Apostle Paul, or God through the Apostle Paul, says that this is true worship? Instead of simply singing songs, or reading your Bible, or praying, that's what we often associate with worship to God. I read my Bible every day. I spend my alone time. Like, I'm not necessarily saying those things are wrong. You can sing songs and pray, but you can sing songs and pray and read your Bible and not really love and follow Jesus. Let me explain. Let me ask this question. Can you claim to believe in Jesus your whole life and fake it? Sure. You can claim to believe in a lot of things throughout your life and fake it. But can you submit your whole life to Jesus and fake that? I would argue, not really. If you truly submit yourself, because you either submit or you don't. You may say you're submitting to yourself, but you're really holding stuff back. And so to the rest of the world, it looks like you're submitting. But in your heart, in the deepest part of your heart, God knows you've not fully surrendered. And so you can't really submit and fake it because saying you believe can just be lip service. Just reading your Bible can just be lip service. Standing and singing songs and even lifting your hands during worship can just be lip service if your heart's not in the right place. But with submission, there's no middle ground. There's no gray area. There's no comfortable place for you to hang out. To submit means to accept or yield to a superior force or to the authority or will of another person. And there's no faking that. You either do it or you don't. And your life over time will tell whether or not your faith in Christ is genuine. But a life of full surrender will prove it. And that's, not the, that's, not, that's only the first verse in Romans 12, okay? So let me keep going here. Let's reread verses two and three. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. For by, grace, for by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God. Did I just die? Oh, my, my, I swear my mic cut off there for a second. Not me, da- okay, anyway, my batteries died. God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. That was a weird moment in the sermon, okay. Well, fortunately, Romans 12 tells us how to offer ourselves up to God because it tells us to do that, but then you might be thinking, well, how do, how do I do that? What does this look like? Well, what does verse two say not to do? There's step one, don't conform to this age. Don't conform to the secular worldly system that opposes God. You shouldn't look like, act like, think like the world. We kind of use that terminology in the church today. 
We should be separate. We should be in the world, but not of the world. We shouldn't be just looking, talking, thinking, acting the exact same way as the world does around us, as sinners do around us. We shouldn't be that way. As Christians, we should be holy, set apart, right? Instead, what does verse two say that we should do? It says, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Whenever we took the youth to a retreat uh, in the fall, I believe it was, um, that was so long ago, it feels like. Uh, but we heard, we, we read this verse and, and the, the pastor who was preaching on this particular passage talked about the idea of being transformed and what that looks like in our lives. Like what's a good illustration of that? And he said, imagine you in a car, I don't know, we'll say it's a, a little Prius or something, no offense to those who drive Priuses, but you're in a little Prius and you're driving on the highway at 80 miles an hour and coming in the opposite direction straight towards you is an 18-wheeler Mack truck and it smacks you. It's going 80 miles an hour, you're going 80 miles an hour. Do you think you and the car are going to be transformed? Absolutely. Maybe even into a liquid state at that point. Sorry to be graphic. But here's the thing. That's what it means to be transformed by Christ. You should not look the same. It should be so radically different I think about the Apostle Paul, how like he was murdering Christians until he met Christ and all of a sudden he wants to start joining them and spreading the gospel. And some of them were a little hesitant, like, isn't this Paul who used to persecute us? But he's so radically different now because of what? Not because of some resolution he made, but because of he met Jesus. And listen, this doesn't happen, it might not happen overnight. Sometimes it does. Sometimes for, for, for certain individuals, they meet Jesus. And from that moment on, they are on a completely different, different path. But over time, you should look different now that you've met Christ. The gospels teach us this. And what happens when we do this? What are we able to do? Romans 12 tells us we are able to then discern the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Well, but if we're able to figure out and understand what God wants us to ultimately do in this life. And verse three tells us what the basis of all of this is. One comes from God and one is from our attitude. What comes from God is a measure of faith. And what, it, and what is the attitude that we then should have? Humility. Not thinking of ourselves any more highly than we ought. Okay, so there's all of that in Romans 12. I'm gonna pick that up and I'm gonna drop it back into Matthew chapter two. Let's go back to the wise men. There are these prominent, noble men who traveled God knows only how, how long and despite their wisdom, their position and their stature, they now stand in this modest home in a distant land with this young peasant couple standing before them and this small child and they presented Jesus with gold because they recognized that he was the king, of, the king of the Jews and their response to that truth was to worship him. The point being, your knowledge of who Jesus is directly affects how you react to him. See, in, in this passage, the Magi considered Jesus to be the king prophesied about in scripture. Herod considered Jesus to be a, a threat to his political power. The reaction of Herod then is to try to have Jesus killed. If you continue reading in verse 13 and on, you'll see that Herod's reaction is, I gotta get rid of this guy because he's born the king of the Jews. I'm the king of the Jews. Is he trying to threaten my political power? So he tries to have Jesus killed. Well, the reaction of the wise men is that they worship him. Now, we can criticize Herod all we want, but sometimes our reaction is very similar. Now, not that we try to kill Jesus in any way, shape, or form. That'd be pretty hard to do at this point. But we try to get him out of our way. 
oh, Jesus wants to show up in my life and tell me what to do? I don't think so. I'm down with Jesus. I'm down with what he did for me. But to completely change everything about my, my life and what, what I'm supposed to be doing, and I, I'm not doing all of that. We, re, we react as if he's now a threat to us, to us on our own throne. Get him out of our way so we can continue to reign over our lives. Well, here's the challenge for you today. Ask yourself this question. Are you worshiping Jesus for who he truly is? Or are you trying to minimize his role in your life? How you answer that question reveals how you answer this question. Who do you believe Jesus to be? Who is Jesus? Because if you believe him for who he truly is, you have no choice but to submit to him and to worship him. And if you resist that, we'll get to there. Okay. This Christmas season, we've... we've, been introduced to, reminded of, and reflected on who Jesus truly is. Hopefully you got that this Christmas season. Hopefully you were able to take some time amongst all the chaos and busyness of the Christmas season and just really reflect on the fact that Christ, God, came to earth and he took on flesh. And, and one of the things that Pastor Fred talked about in his sermon, like, I don't know, I, I think about it sometimes, but I don't know, it just really hit me whenever he said it. He came to earth and subjected himself to the ultimate care and he relied on his own creation for a period of time when he was really little. That's what babies have to do. They are fully reliant on their mother. And that's what Jesus, God, did that. He came and he placed himself in the care of, and nurture of his own creation. But my question to all of that, God doing that, my question is, is what is your response going to be to that? Will you worship him? Because if the answer is yes, then I have to ask, are you offering yourself as a living sacrifice? Because you may say you're worshiping him, but if you're not living as a means to present your body as a living sacrifice, the apostle Paul would say, well, that's not true worship. And not only that, when you are worshiping, are you giving your full attention to God. This is where I slip up because here's a newsflash for all of us, including me. Worship is not about us. See, worship isn't about whether or not you're having a good time, whether or not you're in the mood. No, it's your body, presenting your body as a living sacrifice. So am I willing to sacrifice the fact that I don't feel like worshiping right now to worship? I don't really like this song. Nah, it's too loud. I don't really want to worship right now. I don't really have time to like spend, in, uh, spend time in his word. I, oh yeah, I got to pray. Like we do these things, right? But here's the thing. Worship is about glorifying God with our whole heart, mind, body, and soul. And the apostle Paul, I think, displays this very well in Acts chapter 20. He says this. He says, you know, from the first day I stepped foot in, I step I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and during the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. You know that I did not hesitate to proclaim anything to you that was profitable and to teach you publicly from house to house. I testified to both the Jews and the Greeks about repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus. And now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there except that in every town, the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. Sounds like my time to tap out. But he says in verse 24, but I consider my life of no value to myself. 
My purpose is to finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. See, it's not about what Paul wanted. Because no doubt, Paul in his flesh doesn't wanna be in chains. He doesn't wanna be afflicted. But if that's what God is calling him to do in order for the gospel to be spread, so be it. The gift of worship. And along these same lines, let's move on to point number three and lastly this morning, which is myrrh, the gift of sacrifice. So we've seen this morning gold, which is the gift of kingship, frankincense, which is the gift of worship, and now we're on to the third and final gift, myrrh, which is the gift of sacrifice. Now, according to some scholars, myrrh had, to some scholars, myrrh had an even greater value than gold when Jesus was born. I don't know the, the, the validity of that, but it was a valuable item. We're, we're, I'm adding to the fact that all three of these are very valuable items. Myrrh was a spice that had several uses. Before embalming was common in today's day and age, obviously, which preserves human remains by treating them. It kind of stalls the decomposition process, right? What would happen is in those days, bodies would be wrapped in cloths and spices, often including myrrh. So myrrh was undoubtedly, undoubtedly in those day and age connected with death. People often thought of, oh, the embalming process. That's one of the spices you use to, to keep a body as fresh as possible so that you could go and visit it and all that kind of stuff. So now let's think about this for a moment. Who do you know in today's day and age that would bring embalming fluid as a gift to a small child? Like, just imagine you're in the hospital, you just had your baby, or maybe, I don't know, the baby's home now, and you've been kind of adapting to life as a new parent, and one of your relatives or friends come over and says, I got a gift for the baby. You think, you know, maybe it's a blanket or a little stuffed animal or something, and you open it, and it's embalming fluid. That's weird. Perhaps the wise men intended this gift as an indication of Jesus's humanity and the manner in which he would save his people, namely that he would die for them. See, these wise men would have known the scriptures that the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 53, that the suffering servant was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like some, someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him, yet he bore himself our sickness and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. See, you, you look further at the story of Jesus though and there's other times where myrrh is mentioned and it's affiliated or, or in line with or pointing towards his death. On one occasion, Jesus, during his public ministry, a, a woman who anticipated his death anointed him with a similar mixture of spices, including myrrh in Matthew chapter 26, verses six through 13. And, and this woman was scoffed at by some of the disciples for wasting such an expensive perfume on someone who is living. Why would they do that? Well, Jesus responds to them in verse 10 saying, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. What an awesome testimony that she has for the rest of human history. Not only that, and, and just a couple of other things, in Mark, myrrh is mentioned as being mixed with wine uh, uh, and offered to Jesus on the, while he's on the cross. 
Uh, that was a specific mixture uh, that was intended not for relief of him wanting something to drink, but if anything, to make the pain even worse. Um, and then after he's dead in John's gospel at Christ's burial, Nicodemus, the man he had a conversation with in John chapter three, provided 75 pounds uh, of myrrh and aloes for his body. Not only that, Mark chapter 16 tells us women went to the tomb on Easter morning, as we know it, uh, to anoint Jesus's dead body. They had with them myrrh and other spices. See, it's, it's so clear, and most Bible scholars conclude that the bottom line for the wise men presenting myrrh to Jesus, even at a young age, is this, that the wise men in laying myrrh at Jesus's feet when he was just a small boy were at least acknowledging, some would assert prophesying, that he would ultimately be a sacrifice that this child before them, Jesus, was born to suffer and die. So when you think of this gift brought by the wise men, when you think about the Christmas story or season that we just exited or we're, we're maybe kind of still in the midst of, when you reflect on these things, you should automatically think about why Jesus came to earth, which was to die for the sins of the world, to be a sacrifice for us. See, I hope that you've seen that this is not just another Christmas message. It could be. You could preach this at Christmas time and it would definitely apply. But this is not just, I didn't intend this as just another Christmas message. No, this is simply just a Christian message. This is a message to the, the followers of God at all times, all people, uh, all walks of life. This is not just something that we ought to be uh, reserving for once a year around the holiday season. And as Christians, as faithful followers of Jesus Christ, we must be willing to offer ourselves to God, follow where he leads. Because today, and I hate to say this because it sounds kind of corny, but all of us in a way are all wise men and women this morning. See, what we've done is we have come together here this morning to hopefully worship God and offer God our best. Hopefully that's why you're here this morning. We all come from different walks of life, different backgrounds, all of that. But when it comes, but when it, when it comes to us presenting ourselves before God, we are all to simply follow, to, to, to be followers and to desire to learn more about being a faithful people because it's amazing what God can do with even the most unlikely followers who just want to worship him. And what's interesting is that we're entering into the season of resolutions, right? Talked about it a little bit at the beginning. It's all these promises. Some of us, it's empty promises that we're gonna make for at least a week or two, and then we're gonna give up on them. And listen, I, I get it. To be resolute about something means I'm standing firm in this. I'm not wavering on this. And that's fine when you focus on earthly things like wanting to be healthier, maybe wanting to read more books, maybe wanting to be more active, whatever it is, eating better. I don't care. That's fine. Do those things. But can we all be resolute to the fact that Jesus is king? He's worthy of our worship. And why? Because he ultimately came and sacrificed himself for us that we might have eternal life. Above all other things, this New Year's, I get it. You have all these other things in mind. Some of you are gonna go home and throw the, the hot dogs and sauerkraut in the, in the crock pot and get ready for your parties and this, that, and the other. Cool, fine, do all that. Celebrate the New Year, welcome it in. Do whatever you need to do. But don't leave here without becoming resolute with the fact that Jesus is king 
He wants you to submit under his authority to ultimately worship him because he gave himself for you. That's why he came. The wise men knew it. I I pray that you would as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time this morning. I thank you, Lord, for um, the fact that you did come. As creator of the universe, you stepped out of eternity into human flesh. You did this as a means to live the life that we could not live, to then ultimately lay down your life and die the death that each and every one of us deserve to die because we've rebelled against you, but, but Christ didn't. And he willingly gave himself and then rose again three days later so that we might have the chance of eternal life, so that we might believe in him and have eternal life. Well, that's, that's the best gift ever. And Father, as we reflect on the fact that you gave the best gift ever, I want us also to reflect on the fact that the wise men understood this before it even happened. And they presented gifts appropriate for a king, one who is worthy of our worship, one who would ultimately sacrifice. And so as we just kind of take time to reflect this morning, to go into a time of of worship in song, that we would also go into a time of worship in heart, in mind, body, soul, that we would just completely surrender ourselves over to you, that this would be a time not for ourselves to think about what we're doing afterwards or, or to see whether or not we enjoy the songs that are gonna be sung, but just to keep our attention fixated on you and you alone. Help us this morning to just really give ourselves to you. If there's someone here today that has never surrendered themselves to you for salvation, I pray that they would do that this morning that they would seek somebody out that they know maybe invited them here or a friend, that they would seek that person out and say, what does it mean to surrender to Christ? How do I do that? That they would, that your Holy Spirit would draw them, Lord. But for us here today that have already done that, made that decision, but might be hiding a few things here and they're keeping some things from you, God, because we want to remain in control or to reign over our lives. Father, I pray that you would just convict us of those areas, help us to lay them at the foot of the cross and surrender ourselves to you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.